Well, hey everyone, and welcome tonight, March the 15th, to another edition of Your Questions, God's Questions. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Joe from City Point Church in Brossard, and um, we do this every Monday night for half an hour and answer people's questions. Usually we have a lead question, and then we will take anything live that you want to try uh, and uh, I can try to answer it right away or bring it up at the next broadcast. I see you got four people on. That's great. So if even one of you four hit that share button uh, on Facebook or YouTube, we can we can reach more people and get this content out, okay? Uh, I try to answer questions from the Bible um, in such a way that your non-Christian friend uh, we'll learn something. You won't be, uh, you know, embarrassed to share the content. I'm not coming across, uh, you know, in a hard kind of preachy way here. Uh, we do have a little word of prayer at the end. And if there are any prayer requests that you have, I would invite you to use the comment section in either Facebook or YouTube and let me know what those are. And uh, uh, good evening to Viano. God bless you tonight, Viano. And thank you for tuning in. And um, uh, yeah, we're going to deal with part two of what is, in my view, one of the most important questions that a Christian uh, will ask themselves and should know the answer to, but that a Christian should know the answer so that they can explain it to others. Um, the number one religious view now in uh, North America, and probably it's going to be the whole Western world soon, is no religious view. Uh, there are an awful lot of people who say they're either an atheist or an agnostic, or they're just sort of aloof to the whole thing. And religion is, they're checking that nun box. Maybe they grew up in it, maybe they went to church when they were a child, or some religious uh context when they were a child but when they grew up they gave it up or maybe they had a bad experience or maybe none of their questions got answered satisfactory so they satisfactorily so they deconstructed their faith that's very popular these days you've got uh, a fair bit of people writers musicians actors sports heroes you know and they've left to christianity or whatever their religious upbringing was and sometimes um, it's because they just don't get good answers to the questions that they have. And this is a foundational question. Um, because when we talk about Easter, uh, which we're going to celebrate in whatever it is, three weeks, um, we're talking about belief in Jesus and him being raised from the dead and him doing miracles and the things he taught and the things that he said. This is coming from a 2,000-year-old piece, piece of literature, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I guarantee you, especially those of you with kids, as those kids get older and as they go into school, uh, their beliefs are going to be challenged. They're not going to be supported much. They're going to be challenged. Um, and that's not a bad thing um, as long as they can meet the challenge. And the question is, are these, are these things answerable? Are the Gospels trustworthy? We're putting our lives uh, into the hands of God. Um, 
can the Bible be trusted, in particular the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, about the life of Jesus? And this is a huge, huge question. In churches, this is almost never preached on because it involves some detail, and I think maybe people are bored by it. I don't know, but if you ever try to share your faith with people who don't uh, uh, follow Jesus or have no religious view, they're going to ask this question. And I think it's a very viable question, a very good question, and fortunately a question that we can answer. So we started this last week, uh, and I'll put these uh, slides on the screen one by one here. And um, the big thing that we learned last week was the dating how old are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Can we date them? That was a big thing that we learned. Uh, and most people don't know the answer to this question. And if you can't tell, if you don't know in your own heart when these these things came from, when they were written, wow, you may have no trouble believing, but you're going to explain your faith to people and they're going to have trouble with it. Maybe somewhere down the road, someone who you talk to is going to ask you the question. You won't know how to answer it. There's a, the, and there's a great answer to this question. And the interesting thing is it involves reading the Bible. Uh, most of this answer you can intuitively figure out by reading the New Testament carefully. If you know a little bit about the history of the time, just a little, you can also figure it out. But, you know, people say, well, why should I read the Bible? Reading the Bible doesn't make the Bible true. Uh, well, I, I, my, my question back would be, have you read it? Um, reading it doesn't make it true. Make it true. That's true. But there are certain things that you discover when you read it, and if you're going to challenge Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as being reliable accounts of what happened the ma in the major events of the life of Jesus, you can ascertain that to a large degree by reading the New Testament. Let me show you a couple of things here. We did this last week, but we'll do this for a quick review. Hopefully some more people will jump on. If they don't, let me remind you, this is very shareable. There's nothing that I'm going to say here that the non-Christian or even the skeptic will be able to to say is, is incorrect or untrue. I'm just sharing just the facts, ma'am, okay? Um, we have a couple of ways of dating. Uh, we date, I'll put this on the screen first, um, just look at the top sentence, all right? We date the, go uh, uh, we date the Gospels by dating Paul. <laughs> we don't date the Gospels by dating the Gospels. And we date Paul by using something in the book of Acts, mostly. They say, well, that's really confusing. Okay, I'll back up a little bit. So we went over a couple of facts last week. Um, we have in, in uh, not in the Gospels, but in uh, Acts, which is written by Luke, who's one of the guys who wrote the Gospels, we have a lot of little minute details, a lot of seemingly meaningless detail after detail after detail. And we wonder, well, what's this got to do with my life? Why is this relevant from my life and so on? Well, it's really relevant when you want to trust the Gospels because one of these facts that he records is in Acts chapter 18, and uh, verses 1 and 2, and uh, God bless you, Joelle, and you do share it, my friend, and you you have some great conversations with people, okay? Um, uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, you see the arrival 
of uh, Aquila uh, and Priscilla. So uh, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. These are, of course, real cities that you can go and visit today. Um, he left there, and um, and there he met, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. There he met a Jew, note that he says that this person is Jewish, it's important, named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because, and here's the important thing, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, we know of this from a detail in a historian, a non-Christian historian by the name of Suetonius. And Suetonius tells us that Claudius indeed expulsed all the Jews from Rome in the year 49. He says in his ancient work that this was because of some trouble that arose because of Crestus. Some scholars think that Crestus means Christ and that there was a controversy, a rift that happened uh, in the Jewish culture at that time because of Christ. And so Claudius just bans them all from Rome and expels them all from Rome. And Aquila is one of these people who has been expelled, as is his wife. Minor detail. But what it tells us is that this thing took place in the year 49. And here's Paul. Paul is there uh, in Corinth in the year 49. This is what we can ascertain. How interesting. You say, what's that got to do with the Gospels? Again, I'll show you in a minute. And so Paul goes to see them, and um, he was a tent maker and so on. Um, we also see in Acts chapter 18 and verse 12, which is also on your screen there, further confirmation that Paul was there uh, because in verse 12, it says, um, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. Well, we actually have a piece of archaeology, an inscription that confirms that Gallio was the proconsul there in the year 51. So what this does, if you read the whole narrative there, is Paul stayed there for a bit. Um, uh, and and in, in verse 5, uh, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, he, they, he, they, there was an opposition there, and he says, from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. So Paul leaves, he goes and, and starts to, to teach uh, in other places. Uh, many Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized, that's verse 8. And then uh, Paul has this vision uh, from, from God, do not be afraid, I am with you. I have many in this city, and so on. So Paul stays there for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Now, it's, it's, when we dovetail uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 5, with the arrival there of Silas and Timothy from Macedonia, we see something in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and uh, verse 
verse uh, 6, I think it is. Uh, let me check. I think it's verse 6. Uh, yeah, First uh, First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Timothy has now just come to us from you. And we dovetail this with Acts chapter 18, verse 5. We say, aha, Paul is writing First Thessalonians. Uh, last week I said Corinthians. It is in Corinthians. It's First Thessalonians in the year A.D. 50. This is this is very easy to show just by reading those tiny little details, little details in um, in uh, the book of Acts. And we put it all together with history, with little verse in First Thessalonians chapter three, verse six. And we could say, bingo, Paul is writing First Thessalonians without question, really, in the year 50. Now, uh, if we go back to our slides here. We also know another fact, and that is that uh, Festus arrives in Judea in the year 60. Uh, you'll, you'll see this in Acts chapter 25. This is uh, part of the whole thing of Paul on his way to Rome to face charges, uh, and he, he wants to go all the way to Rome to preach the gospel, and he will end up dying in Rome. But we know that Festus arrived there in the year 60 from from the secular history books, so to speak. And we know that in Acts chapter 25, he dispatches Paul to Rome. We also know that Paul would die at the hands of Emperor Nero. And we know that Nero died in 68. And so, therefore, we have this picture, which I'll put here, um, that we can date Paul from 50 at the earliest to 68 at the latest. It's fairly simple to do. And we, how do we do this? Again, we date the Gospels by dating Paul. We date Paul by Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 25. So we've got Suetonius over here, the expulsion of the Jews. We've got the Delphi inscription here confirming Gallio as the proconsul of Achaia. So Paul's in there in 50. He's writing 1 Thessalonians because we dovetail Acts chapter 18, verse 5 with 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. I'm saying that fast, but you can review. And we know that Paul would die at the hands of Nero. And so we get this chart. So 50 to 68. So that means the rest of the Gospels have to be, uh, or the Gospels have to be here somewhere between when Jesus died and uh, when we start seeing these things appearing in the press, so to speak. We have quotes of the New Testament very early. Early church fathers quote them. We have very, very early copies of the New Testament. And so we can put the Gospels quite safely in this period of time here. Very, very, very early, right? So that was reviewed from last week. Then I talked to you about cold case Christianity, which I would challenge you uh, to watch on Right Now Media. If you're a part of our church, uh, you should ha already have an account that you can get on and watch that. But uh, if you need one, contact me and I will get that for you. And uh, Cold Case Christianity, very cool. It's uh, J. Warner Wallace, who's a former uh, cold case investigator, investigates uh, cold case homicides. And he uh, was not a Christian and uh, became a Christian solely by applying his trade to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a skeptic, came to the place where he said, I believe, not because I want to, but because their testimony 
is reliable as per the accepted rules uh, that are used in court all the time. So rule number one, were they present? We talked about that. Were these eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually present? And we talked about that, that last week. Uh, we noticed that the deaths of, for example, James, half-brother of Jesus, Peter, Paul, these are not mentioned in the New Testament. The siege and the destruction of Jerusalem are not mentioned. It suggests that this stuff was written before it happened. And that would make sense according to our timeline. Very, very early dating. Whoever wrote this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have a very strong case that they were there, that they saw it, whatever they saw, that they wrote it, and that they were there. So this is not uh, people writing way, 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 way after the facts took place. These are people writing as the facts are taking place, right? Uh, test number two, were they corroborated? In other words, can the can one witness corroborate what another witness says? Or do you have, you have one witness saying one thing, another witness saying something else, and they're not corroborating at all? And then you have nothing from the outside of the scope of witnesses that corroborates anything that they say either. Well, that's not true with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. With Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have you have uh, Matthew saying something happens one way, doesn't make sense fully. Then you have Luke, for example, coming in and talking about the same thing, but from a different angle that gives it more, uh, a, more a more rounded sense, and you understand. Ah, okay, that's the way that it happened. I can corroborate Matthew with Luke in this particular case, and that happens over and over and over again as you read the Gospels, you discover that they kind of fit together like a like a bit of a jigsaw puzzle, a complicated one, but they do, and that's normal when you have, you know, four witnesses to something. They're not going to line up exactly. If they say the exact same thing, yeesh, you have a little reason to be suspicious that they could be they could be inventing it. But if they say something, they're referring to this clearly the same event, but it's a little off. One sees it one way, one sees it another way, and you're able to draw a bigger picture. That's what we call internal corroboration. And then can they be externally corroborated? Can people from outside, whatever these witnesses are saying, corroborate what they're saying if they don't even know them? Well, we've already looked at a couple of examples, right? You've got Suetonius, the Roman historian who's who's totally outside the scope of Christianity, saying something that dovetails with uh, what Luke is writing. Uh, and we see this kind of thing over and over again. We don't see it in every single instance in the Bible, of course, but we see it in many, this kind of external corroboration. So that's test number two. Tonight we'll do test number three, test number four, and if you've got anything else, put it in the comments section, put it in the question section. I may try another question tonight. I've got one that somebody sent me yesterday. But um, uh, test number three, uh, did their story change? So if you've got a witness and they start changing their story, they said one thing the night of the alleged crime, and then, you know, 10 days later, they change their story. And then 10 days later, they change their story. Well, you're probably not going to believe, you know, it, it, if it's the story is changing all the time and their testimony is changing. Has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John changed? Uh, okay, we can say it was written a long time ago. It was written, they were, they were eyewitnesses who wrote it. But what if the story changed? In other words, what if 
the miraculous parts of the story, which is what everybody has a problem with, what if the miracles and the idea of Jesus being God and the idea of Jesus rising from the dead was put in there later? I mean, come on, it's 2,000 years old. You know, pe- people in, in uh, cold case uh, uh, murders tamper with evidence all the time, uh, at least according to J. Warner Wallace. So the question is, has the evidence, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, been played with, been tampered with, and you get, you know, it's copied and copied and copied, and somebody says, well, let's make Jesus more than he was, and let's make him into God, and let's put this miracle here, put this resurrection over here, and presto, we have a whole new religion. Uh, Did that happen? Well, uh, you'll see this in the videos, but J. Warner Wallace talks about this, he terms it a chain of custody, so, you know, if you have a if you have somebody who took a picture, a Polaroid of a piece of evidence, you know, 30 years ago, the night of this uh, this uh, supposed uh, crime, um, that that's a lot better than somebody 30 years after the fact saying this is evidence. But how did it get there? Maybe somebody put it in later. Maybe it wasn't there the night of the crime, you see. So with the Gospels, do we have an unbroken chain of custody? And we've already answered that question because we see how early the Gospels are written, but also, and I'll put it back on your screen, how quickly the information, this is all of the information in the New Testament, earliest date, about 33 latest date uh, that it would have been finished would be about 96. We have to have these barriers in here because the thing is being quoted this early. So 96, you've got the students of the apostles. We call them the early church fathers. The students of the apostles are quoting from the apostles' teaching. They're quoting from Peter, uh, his teaching. They're quoting from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're doing this incredibly early, and we look at the early church fathers and what they wrote, and it's the same thing. It, it, the story hasn't changed. And then we look at these copies that we have. It's a very small gap, maybe 20 years, uh, between you know when the New Testament would have had to have been finished and when these copies start appearing. A very small gap, but the gap is filled by the early church fathers, you see. And so you have this unbroken chain of evidence here where this story as, uh, okay, filled with miracles for sure, as miraculous as it is for sure, for for sure, but it's an unbroken chain um, of testimony. And so uh, John, for example, had students uh, in the early church, these were the early church fathers, Ignatius, Polycarp, Papias, these are these are students of the Apostle John. They quote from his work, and they the early church fathers quote from the New Testament so often that we don't even need any manuscripts of it. All we need is the early church fathers. We can rebuild the whole New Testament. It says the exact same thing uh, as it always has. So this idea of well, you know, there's been evidence tampered with, so to speak, and the story has changed. It doesn't hold up. There's one more test that um, is used in courtrooms and the like, and that is, were the eyewitnesses, the alleged eyewitnesses, were they biased? Did they, did, are they saying this because they have some kind of a bias? 
toward the the suspect or maybe the victim or is there some kind of a bias that they have and and the way this would work with the gospel writers is we would have to say that they they lied and that their bias caused them to lie because they were there <laughs> and they're they're declaring this to be truth they're declaring that they're not lying but if they if they have a some sort of bias then we have to say all right then that would mean we'd have to accuse them of lying. So that's a, that's a relevant question. Uh, did Matthew and Mark and Luke and John lie? Would, it would be quite a brilliant lie. Uh, and, you know, they're saying that they're telling the truth. Uh, they say we're not lying. They say we're not invite, in, inventing cleverly devised tales and so on. We saw it. We heard it. But still, they could be lying. And uh, uh, the... The, our detective guy there, J. Warner Wallace, he talks about three reasons uh, that he has found in decades of police work. Three reasons that people lie. <laughs> I found this to be interesting. And he identifies three. Financial gain, uh, sexual or relational lust. Here, I'll put the arrow here. Financial gain, sexual or relational lust, or pursuit of power. It reminds me of something in First uh, uh, John, I think it is the... Uh, the uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. All that is in the world, John says, are those three things. Well, it relates. Financial gain will cause people to, to do things they shouldn't do. Sexual or relational lust will cause people to do things that they shouldn't do. And the pursuit of power. And this is what this, you know, policeman says is, it was one of those three, or not, if not all three, in every single crime, in every single lie, there's a motive, and it's one of those three. Interesting. Well, if we were to apply this to the Gospels, any financial gain? <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? I mean, out of the question, right? They didn't write, <laughs> write what they wrote so that they'd make money. Um, in fact, one could argue it made them even more poor. Uh, writing what they wrote, they were out of a job. You know, Peter... Uh, was a a fisherman. He was out of a job after uh, Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, he was out of a job and probably a lucrative job uh, because of him uh, following Jesus. So no financial gain. I mean, you know, the whole thing of uh, are they going to get more girlfriends or something by writing this down is is laughable. I don't even know if we need to spend five seconds on that. But the one that people uh, think about a bit with the gospel writers is the pursuit of power what if they're writing all of this down uh to create a new messiah uh who people will follow a new religious system a new religion that they can control people with and manipulate people with uh maybe that was the reason why they wrote it down it was an elaborate uh scheme a big lie uh so that they could become powerful. Well, uh, that may may be possible, but is that like plausible? Is that reasonable to think about? Because we know what happened to these people after they wrote their material, after they became followers of Jesus, in some cases reluctantly. We know what happened to them. They all died for what they believed. Now, Dying for what you believe doesn't make what you believe true. It's no reason to believe that the something is true. 
But dying for what you believe to be true and know to be false, this is a different story entirely. And this is something that we never see. Um, People who are deliberately concocting a story and then giving their lives up for what they know is deception and lie. There There were people in a position to know whether this was true or false, and the people are right there, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Um, Some would accuse them of being, well, you know, they're followers of Jesus, so they're going to write good things about Jesus. Well, I mean, good things about Jesus that are going to get them killed? Uh, (laughs) It's it's a really, a real stretch of the imagination to to say that. I think uh, what's reasonable is they died for what they believed to be true. All of them, without exception for what they believed to be true. So by the four four little tests here that we flash through the screen, were they present? Were they corroborated? Did their story change? Were they biased or did they lie is what we're saying? They pass all four tests. And this is why our detective friend became a Christian, not because he had an experience, not because he had an emotion, not because of that at all. It's because he sifted through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament and said, goodness, uh, if I p- apply my profession to this, I'm in, a, persp- I'm in a, a real quandary where I have to become a believer. And that's what he did. Um, I think what we're really talking about here is the question of the miraculous, right? So it's n- people have no trouble believing that Jesus was a real person that Jesus taught great things, even that Jesus died on the cross. People have no problem with that. But miracles and um, being God and rising from the dead, people have a lot of trouble with that. Those are the things that, you know, they would say, I don't think that that's really true, but I'll give you all the rest of it because it has nothing of the supernatural in it. But what is that? Is that is that based on evidence? Is that based on uh, accepted principles of, of understanding someone's testimony to be true? No. What that is, is a personal issue with the miraculous, where a person says, it cannot be true because it has the miraculous. What's that? Well, that's a person saying that the miraculous can't happen. Impossible. Uh, people don't walk on water Blind people don't see. Uh, Crippled people don't get up out of their state of being uh, handicapped and disabled. It's impossible. It's impossible. It could not have happened. And yet, by the rules of eyewitness testimony, these are trustworthy folks. What it is is a personal bias against the supernatural being possible. And that's got nothing to do with evidence that has to do with someone's view, someone's experience, perhaps, uh, and someone's uh, opinion. But for every person who says, well, miracles are impossible, you have another person who says, well, yes, they are. <laughs> and so y- you run into this question uh, about miracles, but that's a totally separate question as to whether or not these individuals are reliable witnesses, okay? Uh, whoever's on has hung on. So I'm going to do one question uh, as a bonus that came in uh, to me uh, yesterday. And uh, it's a question about Genesis, actually. 
And I've heard this question uh, many times, but not posed this way uh, before. And uh, it was asked to me, why did it did uh, it take God seven days to create? Why couldn't he have just done it all in one shot? <laughs> That's a great question, because the way the questions usually ask is, how could it have been seven days, and is it seven literal 24-hour days, or is that, you know, symbolic or representative of time, and so on. But this person asked it a different way and said, well, why would it take him seven days anyway? Couldn't he have just done it all in one shot? Uh, the answer to this is, I really don't know. Um, you know, we have an account here that God created in seven days. This is reiterated multiple times, uh, especially in the New Testament. The Ten Commandments even has a reference to seven days of creation. Uh, there are varying views that are accepted within the church worldwide. There are people who feel that these seven days are representative of larger periods of time. There are people who feel, no, it's got to be seven literal 24-hour days. Um, I have studied this for years and years and years, and I can tell you every single view, no matter what the view, is filled with speculation and filled with problems. Uh, the evolutionary perspective is filled with problems. The other extreme, the young earth creationist position, which I tend to hold to, is filled with problems. The, the, all the different views, the progressive creation, the young earth, the old earth creation, the theistic evolution perspective, every perspective is filled with all kinds of problems. What we do learn from the Genesis account and what we're supposed to learn is that God is the creator. That's what the point is. God is the creator. People are going to debate how until the, until the end comes, I mean, and that's good to debate. I like the way the person phrased the question because they're looking at it from a a miraculous point of view. Well, if God created and he created miraculously, why would he need time anyway? He could do the whole thing just by snapping his finger. And I love the, the perspective there because it acknowledges the power uh, of God. And I think that's what the Genesis narrative is trying to get us to understand, that God is the creator and God is powerful. So the answer is, ultimately, I don't know, uh, but love the perspective. Um, Love the perspective. I've got somebody here. I'm going to put, uh, going to put this on the screen here. Uh, let me find my mouse. Let me find my mouse. Here we go. I'm just reading this out. Hello, everyone. Uh, certain medicine there, a good remedy for uh, this virus here. I was a carrier of HIV, and I saw a testimony on how Dr. Oba cure the HIV virus, decided to contact him, contacted him, he guided me, I asked him for solutions, and he started the remedies for my health. It's fantastic. Uh, I'm going to try and pronounce your name, Zial. Uh, that's great to hear. I have known um, one person in my life who, uh, who uh, personally is HIV positive, and um, has uh that was many years ago that she was uh which she was diagnosed and has continued to live uh uh f you know very healthy uh since then and uh so god bless you whatever worked that's good i'm glad that it did and uh thank you so much for joining in tonight uh we're going to finish up i'm just going to have a word of prayer for you and again i would uh 
would challenge you to share this content uh, with others. Uh, this is not the type of thing that is often taught on. People assume that the Bible is true, that the Gospels are true, but very few people really understand why. God, I pray for each person who's watching, listening, ultimately that people's faith would be challenged, people would grow, uh, people who don't know you would be challenged by your existence, people who do know you would, would follow you in a deeper way, and Lord, as we approach Easter, that we would, above all things, have a closer walk with you. We pray to that end. Amen. Well, God bless you tonight and look forward to being with you again next Monday night for more of your questions, God's questions. Please send me in anything you like for me to deal with. I've got a couple coming here, but uh, you send me anything you want. You can reach out to me on Facebook uh, or our website at citypointchurch.ca. God bless you, everyone.